Hello, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia with a message for all those that are hungry and thirsty for reality. For those that are new, I want to introduce you to my website at ultimatemeaning.com where I have a flip book with very original writing and understanding by the gifting of the Spirit of God through me which you will find exceptionally interesting. A lot of the print is highlighted in red, and those are links to very profound and amazing YouTube videos that highly verify from many fields of science and archaeology the reality of what I am sharing here. And now also I have put up a video of recent that introduces you that are new to the one true God for whom to know is life eternal, who is the very source of all existence and reality, which is an ultimate perfection and manifestation of love, which is the very source of love. So my introductions from now on will be a lot shorter as a lot of that I share in that video will not, will not be necessary to share with those that are new in introducing people to these messages. These messages are for those that have come to know the one true God for whom to know is life eternal through Jesus Christ. And for those that believe that we believe in three gods, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, no, we believe in only one God. And for God to be almighty, he must be in three personages in order to real, rule in the three ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. As the Father beyond time and space, knowing every detail of the end from the beginning, is the Son fully expressed into the time and space realm to communicate on a limited creature level with creation to, and to experience it. And as the Holy Spirit and omnipresence attached to every particle of existence with creative power to raise the dead or whatever. So, it is one God in three personages. So, in the Father is the Son and the Holy Spirit, and in the Son is the Father and the Holy Spirit, and in the Holy Spirit and omnipresence is the Father and the Son, one God. So, I want to introduce those that are new to how I share these messages. The Word of God says in 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And so that is what I will seek to do in these messages. And there's another scripture that amplifies on this in Revelations 19.10 that says, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, when we worship God in great reverence and humility out of love for God and in spirit and in truth, we are filled with his Holy Spirit in an overflow beyond ourselves that can result in utterances that are from God so that we are speaking prophetically, or in other words, as the oracles of God. And this is what testifies to the reality of Jesus Christ, who is God communicated to this world in human form. Now, before I go on to share more, I want to begin these messages now with the worship song before I go into a bit more introduction and then get into the message, which is received by the casting of Lot before God using two independent applications on the internet to get the possibility of any chapter from the Bible. So that there's two chapters chosen with two independent random applications that will bear witness with each other as to what the theme is that God would have me speak. And I only spent a half an hour meditating on those two chapters and then I usually immediately thereafter speak. And so that's what's happening now. I don't know what I'm going to say. That allows God to speak prophetically as I seek to do this out of a heart set and a mindset of worship. But first, we will go to this worship song that also was chosen by the casting of Lot 
And I admit, because I didn't preach the last two days, it was not chosen today, it was chosen previously. And I believe it is for today when I've had the when I have the opportunity to share. And so here is the song. thankfulness in our hearts to God, despite our circumstances, as the Word of God says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Then God also brings even greater blessing later on than we can imagine. Look at Paul and Silas and all of those that were put in prison in the book of Acts and put into stocks with pain and whipped and in the midst of it all, they're filled with the life and the presence of God and praising him out of great reverence and awe in their delight to experience fellowship with God and his presence in their lives. And it overflowed in this mighty shaking of an earthquake that set them free and caused the jail man that was keeping them as prisoners to fall in and come before them and repent and be saved in his household. And all the prisoners also 
stayed with Paul the Apostle, no doubt most of them also received Christ into their lives. Such was the power of God. And God wants us to know the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, as it says in Ephesians, even the power that raised Christ from the dead. So I want to share with you today what I received by the casting of Lot before God from the Word of God. And so first of all, I want to go to the passages today I received, Mark 14 and 2 Kings 18. And believe me, it was hard to perceive any theme between these two chapters. But I've learned to trust God and to know there always is, and that usually when it's hard to perceive, even sometimes the message is even a lot more powerful and greater. And it is an ongoing theme from the last time I spoke to this time that I have here in these notes. And so we go back to when I last spoke. And that theme which was back on February the 14th. I believe that was Monday this week. It would have been probably Monday. And today is Friday. But that theme was on God purging out of the church that which is puffed up, that which is corrupt. So that the church, both in the old times before Christ, which in this case was in Judges with Gideon, could be powerfully used with a very small group of people. God couldn't use the 22,000 soldiers with Gideon. They would have vaunted themselves because of the pride and the corruption that was in their lives at that time. He needed a small group who would not give glory to themselves and, and attribute deliverance to them when the deliverance came from God. And the same in Corinthians. And so I preach that message, which you can find is the most recent one. And this will be the next one today, of course. So I'm not going to go, I'm just touching on what was coming forth by the casting of Lot in great reverence before God. It really works. When you're walking in a loving, right relationship with God. And so that was first message this week and this is the second one and so now I am going to um, I believe yeah this is all the first message and then on Wednesday I received Jeremiah 49 and Joshua 7 and again I didn't have time to make write any notes on this I just pasted the scriptures in but this is about Joshua um, having to, um, there was a defeat because someone took it the, of the accursed thing in the camp of Israel. And so they had to cast lots to find out which person sinned against God because of a result, because of the result that they disobeyed the commandment of God, which told them when they conquered the city of Jericho, not to take a single thing. This man went and took a garment and some gold and, and a great portion of gold and silver. And so an accursed thing was in their midst in Israel when they came against the city of Ai, fled and people were slaughtered. And it was because of this one individual. And so him and his whole family and household and all that he owned, including the cattle, were all stoned to purge out of their midst that evil that God would turn away from his wrath and continue to use Israel. Oh, some of you say, oh God, he doesn't get angry, does he? Oh yes, he has fierce anger towards sin, both now and always will. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as it says in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Ananias and Sapphira, and of course the New Testament, were smitten dead by God because they lied before the congregation and gave the appearance that they were giving their all materially to the congregation, yet they were withholding some of it. And so God is calling his people in this hour. Obviously the message that is coming forth is that he is going to shake us 
and purify us as individuals and corporately to bring us into a holy union with him that will allow the presence of God to prevail as never before in the history of this world through his people, through his corporate bride that will come forth and be a fearless conquering bride in these last days that will conquer the nations with the good news and the manifestation of the glory of God that will be in their midst. So we read, we continue here, and it wasn't only, of course, the account of that. It was what was happening. The other passage was Jeremiah. And that was about captivity and how God brings people into captivity to return them back to him. And indeed, that is the process that God uses to bring forth his people into the place of purity where he can use them. And so in Jeremiah 40, 49, he says, And I will bring evil upon them, even my fierce anger, saith the Lord, and I will send the sword after them till I have consumed them, because they had rebelled against God. Now, in this case, it's talking about Elam, which is today modern um, Iran. I'm quite certain it's Iran. But not quite 100%, but I'm sure you'll find that's what it is. And it says that in the last days, this is what's going to happen. And I will set my throne in Elam and will destroy from thence the king and the princes, saith the Lord, but it shall come to pass in the latter days that I will bring again the captivity of Elam, saith the Lord. So God is going to deal with that nation. Now I want to go on and skip towards what God has been giving today. And of course, I won't go and comment on yesterday. I didn't preach on yesterday, but I got Ezekiel, or the casting of a lot, Ezekiel 33 and 43. And... Uh, uh, again, it has to do with basically um, the children of Israel um, in 33. Maybe I will touch on it a bit. It says this, When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live if he trust in his own righteousness and commit iniquity, all his righteousness shall not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he hath committed, he shall die. And I recently received this passage. I remember preaching on it very recently. So again, God is emphasizing that he is wanting his people to blow the trumpet because this is about the trumpet of warning to warn people that if they do not repent, they will receive judgment. And he's commanding Ezekiel, you warn the people and you tell them that if you do not repent, your blood will not be required at my hand. You will die because of the iniquity that you refuse to repent of because God is going to bring judgment against this nation at this particular time, which he indeed did. But many that were righteous end up trusting in their own righteousness and that is what causes them to fall and to commit iniquity. And he says, a person that does that, that's lived a righteous life all their lives and then starts to glory in the fact that they've been so righteous like the Pharisees in the time of Christ, which said, I thank thee that I fast three times a week and that I give of my thighs and so on and that I'm not like that publican over there with his face in the ground beating his breast and crying out and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Christ says the publican was the one that was justified, but the Pharisees were deceived by their own righteousness. And that brings us from this message yesterday on Thursday to today on Friday to the message that God has today. Now, I will touch before I get onto the message today on the other verse that was significant in chapter 43. Now, Ezekiel is told to show the children of Israel, the pattern of the temple, and how glorious it is, and how it could have been, so that it will make them ashamed that they are in such a state of sin, so that they'll have a vision and a desire to come to God. And so he says, and I have something outlined here, 
Now let them put away their whoredom and the carcasses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in the midst of them forever. Thou, son of man, show the house of show the house to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the padron. And whether that house and that temple was just there to show them that, or whether when they die, they will be allowed to enter another dimension at that time and actually perform these things as a real possibility, as I know from re writing a book which is titled Afterlife Incredible Irrefutable, which you can purchase on Amazon, 368 pages from the very first page to the last, and in Kindle, really good because there's lots of links in it. But that book does talk about these limited realms that some people go to like the Orthodox Jews. And so it is very likely that they could have had the opportunity upon true repentance when they died to have gone to that temporal realm as even this boy that died went into that temporal realm. And of course the time comes where in alignment with the events upon the earth, Israel as a nation is converted and they look upon him whom they have pierced. And at that time, they will be released from these lim limited realms and temporal paradise realms into the ultimate kingdom of heaven where there is no limitation on the fullness of the pleasures and glory of being in the presence of God and of knowledge. Of course, I can't go into talking on that topic, but I want to go on here to the message today, which was hard to perceive a common theme between these two chapters, but as I continue to meditate, indeed I saw a common theme between these two chapters. The common theme between these two chapters is the deception of the love of money and of the natural things that are more immediate in this world to enjoy over trusting in God for his protection and provision. Both chapters also mention water, which represents provision and sustenance from, of life from God. And so I want to go into these two chapters and allow the Spirit of God as I'm in a heart and a mindset of worship to bring forth what I have not even yet seen in this chapter, which has happened many times to me, even while I am speaking. And so we begin to read, first of all, Mark 14, just certain sections of this chapter. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she brake the box and poured it on his head, and there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor, and they murmured against her. Why did she do that? You know, they're talking among themselves, murmuring. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come afore to anoint my body to the bearing. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of of her for a memorial. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went on to the chief priest to betray him. That really triggered him. I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, in Judas. He was indignant. And he's the one that was stealing money and had a devil in him, according to other scriptures. Stealing money from the money that they were giving for good works unto the glory of God. And that I suppose people were giving to support the disciples in Christ in their ministry. And when they heard it, they were glad. And so the chief priests are glad. And promised to give him money. So he was wanting money. And he sought how he might conveniently 
betray him. And of course, in this chapter, it goes on to describe Christ wrestling and praying, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. But if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. But if not, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. For I came, for, you know, into this world for this purpose. Now, the other chapter I received that relates to this chapter by the casting of Lot, that was hard to perceive, does have the same topic in it in regards to the temporal desires of this world. And so we read in 2 Kings 18.4, he removed the high places. This is speaking of King Hezekiah, a very righteous king that was righteous all his life and pleasing to God. But they have a very evil king come against them, an Assyrian king who tells them they're going to drink their own dung and piss and so on and says, how dare you think that your God can deliver you? And that's the mistake that king made, if anything, is when he said that. Oh, all these other gods couldn't de deliver me, so don't let Hezekiah tell you that you can trust in the Lord and he will deliver you. First of all, the king, the, the king of Assyria is threatening them and making them afraid and speaking their own language and saying he's going to make them drink their own dung and their own piss. And then towards the end, he says to them, but if you come out and surrender, I'll give you your own vineyards and you'll have a wonderful place just like you do here where you can just enjoy your life. And so it is with the enemy. He uses fear and then he uses temptation to get us dwelling on the temporal things of this life and the temporal and more immediate comforts of this life. But these men at the wall and all King Hezekiah told them they are not to answer the king a word. And Christ, when he was before Pilate, he didn't say a word. When he was before the people, they had to really they couldn't get him to speak. And when he did speak, he didn't try to defend himself. He said in Mark 14, Yes, I am the Son of God, and you shall see me returning. And then they rent their clothes and said, Say, he's committed blasphemy. What need further have we? Crucify him. They were so filled with their own self-righteous pride that they could not see that the Messiah was in their midst. And let's remember that at that time, there was a lot of teaching, as you discover from the ancient writings, that believed that there was two Messiahs, a suffering Messiah and a conquering Messiah that would come. They didn't realize that they were one and the same. And so they should have at least perceived that maybe he is the suffering Messiah, especially when the high priest prophesied that there would be a man that would die for the people and he was speaking to them about Christ. Often when the high priest came before the um, ephod in those days, according to ancient writings, which is in my book, called Godheadship and Body Invasion, which you can get on the internet, where it goes to those sources, they often would see the stones light up and they would speak in tongues, unknown tongues, and then they would speak it in their language. And so it could even be that that is when this priest said this and prophesied because it says he prophesied that one man would die for the people. But there was a veil on Israel, like there was a veil on Judas. The veil was that they were so enthralled with a conquering Messiah coming to liberate them from the Romans and a conquering Messiah coming that would bring them wealth and a temporal kingdom in the immediate. The love of money is the root of all evil. 
And here we see, as we continue, we'll continue to read here in 2 Kings 18 about Hezekiah. He was a man, I don't need to read the verses, maybe all of them here. I will go to the actual scripture in Hezekiah. Um, right here. Here we are. Um, and I will point out that in the, uh, the another thing that is common in these two chapters, Matthew 14 and 2 Kings, I believe it is 18, is water. You have this mentioned before I go to more into 2 Kings 18. It says, as Christ was preparing for the Passover, where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And whithersoever he shall go in, say ye to the good man of the house, the master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready. You see, the disciples were all worried about the immediate provision for the Passover. And Christ tells them to follow someone that has a pitcher and is carrying water, and it leads them to the place of provision for the Passover, which is also a type of, because he says, I will eventually, this is the last time I'm going to drink wine. The next time we'll be in the kingdom of God. And when he does it in the kingdom of God, there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. But water represents life. It represents the life of God. Christ said, from whoever believes with their life into me out of their innermost being would flow rivers of living water. And it is the life that we abide in when we trust in God rather than seeking the immediate provisions of this world we experience the flow of his life but that flow of life also leads us to make the right choices to go the right direction to not move in presumption in our own self-righteous ways and trust in our own righteousness and so also the water is mentioned in 2 Kings 18. And as you recall, Hezekiah made a big construction so that the water would not be available for the Assyrian kings to take of when they surrounded the city. And this is a type of what was happening there. And I want to point out what was happening there in 2 Kings now. So I'm going to go to 2 Kings here if I can go to it quickly, I will. Sometimes things go the wrong direction here, but I try it one more time here. I think we got it now, yeah. And here's some of the things. So the king has been threatening them with fear and with the temptation to come out and surrender because he's going to give them all of these wonderful places to live that are just like their own land. But they're not allowed to say a word to him. They're not allowed to allow those influences of the enemy that are tempting and luring and that are also filled with fear to drive them to a place of fear where they make wrong decisions. And so we continue to read here. As I skim down here, I'm just wanting to read the right sections. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended. So the king is, first of all, the king of Assyria has been conquering the northern Israel and other areas. And now he knows he's coming against him. And so... He gives him money 
he gives him money to appease him. And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I am offended. Return from me. That which thou puttest on me will I bear. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of gold, 300 talents of silver, and 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasure of the king's house. At that time did Hezekiah cut off from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah king of Judah had overlaid and gave it to the king. Now, I don't believe he should have done that. He should have, that was a lack there. He was trying to appease with money and that is so easy to fall into a trap to appease the enemy. But Lord is calling us to have no compromise. But later on, of course, the king is defying God himself and saying, don't you dare trust in your God, because look what I have done. Now, therefore, I pray thee. And he goes on to say, I'll give you 2,000 horses, and if you can set riders on them, see if you can conquer me. You can't even conquer one of my captains, even the least of my captains. That's what he's saying to them. So don't fool yourself. And so he's continually threatening them with fear here. And of course, this captain is Rabshakeh. Oh no, Rabshakeh is not the captain. Yeah, it is. It is the captain of Assyria. He says here, Rabshakeh says here, neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me by present, and come out to me, and then eat ye every man his own vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one of the waters of his cistern, till I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of corn and wine, and a land of bread and vineyards, a land of all oil, olive, and honey, that ye may live and not die. So he goes on to threaten them and to tempt them. And I won't go on to, to uh, but the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. Then came Elikim and the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joas the son of Asaph the recorder, to Hezekiah with clothes rent, and told him the words of Hezekiah. And you know what happened. Hezekiah cries out to God. They seek God. They fast. They pray. They cry out to God. And Isaiah the prophet tells them they're going to be delivered. And the angel of the Lord goes into the camp of the Syrians and smites, I forget the number, I guess I could go ahead here and find it, but I don't think, it's in, might have been 20,000, the vast majority of their army is smitten. And the king goes back to his land and is killed by his own sons. Thus was the judgment of God upon this wicked king that defied the God of Israel. And the significance between these two chapters of Mark 14 and this chapter is in Judah, or I should say Judas, who was offended and who was desirous of money and the self-righteousness that was among the people here in Second Kings 18 also, because it says here that they worshipped here. I want to point out something in Second Kings 18 that it says, that Hezekiah did. Then it says here that Hezekiah did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan, which means a piece of brass. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. But what caused the children of Israel to worship this serpent of brass? when God commanded them not to have any idols before them, 
When Moses made that serpent of brass, he didn't make it to break the Ten Commandments that he also was commanded by God to give them. For it was God that commanded Moses to make this symbol of a serpent nailed to a cross. And they were only to look to it. And when they looked, they were healed of the poison. But as time went on, they trusted more in their rituals for blessing and their rituals and that they did this and they did this in their own righteousness and therefore God must be pleased with them but in their heart they were not living in righteousness there is rampant adultery there is rampant idol worship and here they are instead of looking and just not looking at that image at all and not worshiping it at all, they break the first commandment and start to worship this, which was not for worship. It was only as a symbol to look to that they would be healed of the poisonous bite. The poisonous bite from the fear that Satan would try to cause us to receive if we don't, if we freeze in fear and don't quickly bring our foot back, so to speak. If we freeze in here, fear because we, the enemy's saying he's going to do this and this to us. And at the same time, he's enticing us. We're hypnotized by the temptations of the temporal and by the fear of the temporal. And the reason that can happen is because of trusting in fear our own righteousness, pride that is there. And that pride comes because of the loss, the loss of the fear of God. The loss of the fear of God. The fear of God is a deep turning in the heart. It is a choice to deeply turn from one's heart and reciprocate the holiness of God as good. Not to perceive God as some dictator because he's all-powerful. To have a wrong, idolatrous, monotheistic perception of God results in an idolatrous heart set in our heart that can result in worshiping the brazen serpent that was intended to only be looked to for healing, which represented Jesus Christ. No, we're veiled in our own righteousness. And when we're veiled in our own righteousness, that veil causes us to wrongly perceive Jesus Christ, to wrongly perceive this brazen serpent which represents Jesus Christ, so that our soul cannot be healed of the poison of the fear and of the lust of this world that we are prey to and are focused on more than a relationship to God. But the genuine fear of God is a turning to rightly receive the severity of God's dealing against corruption and sin in our lives. And when we do that, we are undone. It drives us to the place of transparency before God, which drives us to the place of humility and the place and perceiving God in his holiness is, is a place of utter reverence and awe that also drives us to the place of humility that drives us to the place of honesty. And so there comes that place where there's a turning in the heart and a circumcision in the heart and a breaking up of the follow ground and a true cry from our hearts and not just mere performance of what we believe pleases God in our lives. Oh, we do this and this, and we're so thankful that we're not like this person. God is calling his people not to be those that are veiled, because it says in 2 Corinthians 3 that the veil remained over the children of the Israel in the reading of their scriptures, of their ceremonial laws, and so on. And then, what does it say right after saying that? It says, but whenever the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away in the 
King James, it says whenever it, but it's more accurately in the Greek, whenever the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. And the secret of truly abiding in God is not to get our focus on all the terrible suffering in our lives and on those around us so that there's a consciousness of loss to us around our self-life that causes uptightness, for it says the perfect love casts out fear because fear has uptightness or torment. So perfect love is received from God and it works by faith, for faith works by love. It is a moral persuasion in the holiness of God is good. That is the integrity of his love that is severe on what is contrary to love in our lives. A love that is the agape love that always chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice, which as such would have a measure of corruption in it. The holiness of God that is as a blazing, consuming fire of love that will not tolerate what is contrary to love. When we are in awe of who God is, instead of becoming unthankful in our heart, because remember at the beginning of this message, I emphasize thankfulness, and that in everything we should give thanks. It says that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. This is what causes a downward backsliding trend of apostasy into idolatry so that we worship the brazen serpent instead of looking onto him who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and can heal that poisonous old nature in us, that grasping state of being that is a hell-contagious state of being that drives us in our own presumptuous ways and allows us to be manipulated by the temporal baits of this world. God will always be putting those that are his in positions many times where they have to learn to trust him, it says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. And the reason he delivers them out of them all is because the truly righteous do not trust in their own righteousness. They trust in the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God, that God is the one that saved us and forgave us. And we're filled with thankfulness and it's out of love for who God is that we do what we do. Not out of thinking that by performing certain things we'll appease this all-powerful being and somehow be accepted of him. It is out of love and reverence for who we perceive he is. But if our heart is veiled because we are looking at all these practices of ritual and so on, then we have an idolatrous monotheistic perception of God. And God is calling his people to not be so concerned. And yes, we should be concerned about what is happening in the world right now with corruption in high places that is so obvious and so blatant as never before in history. But our main focus, what is the key to conquering a nation so that all this corruption in high places is removed by God's power. The key is in the local assemblies throughout the United States and Canada turning back to God as never before. And when I say turning back to God, I've written a book called God Headship and Body Invasion, which has all kinds of things in it that you can do in your local assembly so that you do not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting your local assembly. You can never go back to being the church the way it was when you see the impending judgment upon the land of your, upon your nation, upon the nation where I am here in Canada. It's, if we're still asleep, we're in big trouble. It is time to wake up. And in your town and city, call the churches together to fast and pray for three days and cry mightily unto God. And if you can do an Esther fast, do it if you're in good health. And God is calling his people in this hour to do that and then to go back and come into a new order that will not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ in your local assembly, where you start your meetings as a prayer meeting. Forget about the pre-service prayer meetings. And you allow the gifts of the Spirit to flow through 
freely through each member of the body. And if they're so used to being passive, you facilitate bringing them out of that. Maybe by allowing them all to have a chance to preach a little sermonette of five minutes, whatever it takes. God is calling his people to wake up. And don't be satisfied with just a little hour and a half service on Sunday. Why not have a church service where people can have time to prepare with prayer and so on before the meeting and start at around two o'clock and let it go for four hours so you can really break through. God is calling his people to wake up. To wake up. Because when we turn to God like that, the power of the presence of God in the assembly will literally break the darkness over your city and your community. And when churches do that throughout the United States and Canada, it will break these powers. It will bring them down and God will intervene as much as he intervened using Esther to deliver Israel. He always raises up a standard when the enemy comes in like a flood. But us, as the people of God, must come together to seek him, as they did in the time of Esther, where Esther fasted three days without food or, or liquid, and then came before the king. And I'm sure many other people were doing that. And God intervened. So this is the message God is giving to the church in this hour. Let us not be those that are like Judas that was offended because he was so desirous of an immediate kingdom and so desirous of the immediate things of wealth and of money. May we be those that follow the life of God and that keep the life of God guarded because out of the heart are the issues of life. And like that city wall in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, kept the water inside away from the king. So we are to guard our heart so that the life of God is not swallowed up by the things of this world, being focused on rather than God, being abided in rather than God. But the life of God conquers the death. Paul the Apostle said, we had such trials that we despaired even of life itself, but God allowed it so that we'd not trust in ourselves, but in God that raises the dead. So when pressures come, as they are right now in this time of crisis, may it drive us to seek God and to know the exceeding greatness of his resurrection power. Thank you for listening to this message.